Philippians chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 10 through 20. This is what Holy Scripture says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered in a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Every member of this local church believes that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. Now, just our believing something does not make it true. But there is plenty of evidence if you are willing to look for yourself, both evidence in God's Word and even evidence outside of God's Word that would make it quite obvious that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I am stating that right at the front of my talk because everything I'm about to argue for in this sermon hangs on the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then everything I'm about to say is a profound waste of your time, and I hate wasting people's time. Let me show you what I mean. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not merely the happy ending to a sad story. It is clearly the beginning of something new. Since Christians are so closely connected to Jesus by faith, there is a sense in which we too are living a resurrected life. Now, there's an already not yet tension to that resurrected life. 
There's times we're doing quite well, the already living that resurrected life, but there's times we're not, the not yet, because we're awaiting the final day and our final resurrection when we too will be given new bodies and will be with God forever, thanks be to God. But this new way of living, this new resurrected life is true regardless of our experience of it. It's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, for instance, would say, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so you too will walk in newness of life, a newness of life. So the resurrection of Jesus provides a way for all those who are identified and knit together with Jesus by faith to walk a new life, a new walk. For the first time in your life, you are unshackled from compulsively sinning, and you're empowered by his Holy Spirit to be dead to sin made alive in order to be dead to sin. What does it mean to be dead to something? Well, think of that high school boyfriend that you broke up with and you said, you are dead to me. Now, what did you mean by that? You meant I am no longer interested in you. I want nothing more to do with you. I am ceasing to be identified with you. It is over. And this is the relationship that Christians now have to sin. We are done with sin. We are no longer interested in sin. Sin's dominion in our thoughts and desires is over. Except sin acts a lot like a lot of rejected boyfriends. It keeps knocking at the door. It keeps coming back and telling you how it's going to be different this time. That's what sin is like. And sometimes we Christians fall prey to the lies of sin. And we sin again, even though we know we don't have to sin again because we're walking in this new resurrection life. But praise God, the resurrection of Jesus changes our whole way of thinking too, not just our whole way of doing. That's why Paul says to the Colossians this time, Since then, you, Christians, have been raised with Christ. That's resurrection language. Since you've been raised with Christ, since that's true, seek, look for, identify. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, because he's resurrected and he's at the right hand of his Father. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the seeking that Christians do is an internal compass of the soul kind of thing. We willfully set our minds, our desires, our thoughts on heavenly things as opposed to earthly things. And that's what you can finally do if you have been saved by the resurrected Jesus. Just as he was raised, there is a very real sense in which you have been raised. You are a new person. And as we like to say, your job now is to become what you are. And part of what you are is a person who delights 
in God, who treasures God, who treasures God himself above everything else. You are setting your mind on the enthroned Christ, and when you do that, you are making a value choice. You are choosing to value God above everything else. You're choosing to love God, to delight in God. And all of that, beloved, hinges on the reality of the resurrection. There is no escaping that reality. If you deny, in your heart of hearts, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and say, I don't really think Jesus rose from the dead. That's an impossibility. All your religious words, all your religious works are a massive waste of time if that's you. You would be better off going to some rave downtown than you would be being here right now. Paul says this, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If there's no resurrection, you're wasting your time. That's how central the resurrection is to the Christian faith. Your faith is vain, Paul says. There's no resurrection, your faith is empty. It's without meaning, it's pointless, it's a big, ugly waste of your time. However, if Christ was raised, if the, resurrection, if the resurrection was real, is real, and you are hidden in Christ, you're one with Christ by faith, then that changes everything. In fact, that little phrase, being in Christ, oh boy, that's important. It's all through your New Testament, everywhere. Read the Apostle Paul, read everything, he, you'll just keep seeing it, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, in him. It's, it's just all through the Bible. Why? It is a statement of position and it is a statement of relationship. If you are in Christ, that's a statement of position. It is also a statement of relationship. And that, that little phrase, in Christ, in him, it is vital in, to understanding the, the point of what I'm trying to get at, which is this. True delight in God will eventually result in real contentment in life. True delight in God will eventually result in real contentment in life. Are you content? You good? Satisfied? Happy? Unaffected, in the best sense of that word, unaffected by the things that are going on around you? Soul satisfied regardless of your external circumstances? There is a crucial chain from resurrection to delight to contentment. You can't remove any one of them, any one of the links. See if you can spot it then in our passage here in Philippians chapter 4. Begin reading in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's writing to them, telling them, thank you for sending a financial gift probably to help Paul while he's in prison. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. There was no way to get it to him, but now there was. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him or in him who strengthens me. Now, let's work backwards. We'll, we'll start in verse 13 there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the much misused verse that, uh, you know, if you've got it in your gym, that's not the point, okay? Uh, what is he talking about here? It comes at the end of this talk about contentment. And he is saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I think we're really helped here if we do what most of the English versions do. Our English Standard Version uses the word through, but the majority and most scholars would agree it should be translated in. It's a little preposition in the original language, and when you bring it into English, you kind of have to decide. Most of the time, it's, the, it's in, and I think that's the way that Paul is using it here. He, he does this, so if you read it that way, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. So I, te- I said earlier that in Christ, in him, in Christ Jesus, that's all through the apostle. It's all through the book of Philippians, back in chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 1, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odie and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord, always, again I will say rejoice, in the Lord, in Christ, in Him. I said to you that this phrase is both, it speaks about your position and it speaks about your relationship to God. And being in Him, being in the Lord, describes your position with God, being in the Lord describes the ongoing relationship you have with the Lord. It's really well illustrated, I think, by Passover. Remember Passover when God is going to bring his people out of Egypt? A lamb was to be sacrificed, and then the blood of that sacrificed animal was painted on the door into the person's home, and then you had to go into the home And when you were in the house, you were protected from the avenging angel who was going around killing all of the firstborn. In a similar way, Christ was sacrificed for us. His blood was poured out, and everyone hidden in Christ, behind the blood of Christ, is protected from eternal death. That illustrates the positional aspect of being in the Lord. But Passover is not where things ended with Israel. Then came what? Exodus. We leave that house and its bloody door frame and we go out. Israel didn't stay behind those blood-stained doors. They, they came out, they began their pilgrimage, their new way of life, and where are they going? They're marching to the promised land. In a similar way, those who have been hidden in Christ now venture forth into new life, a new way of living, heading to that final promised land with all that we need along the way in order to please Him because of this ongoing fellowship we have with Him. And that illustrates then the relational reality of being in Christ. So position and relationship. But you also might remember, what did Israel do when they were wandering around the wilderness? 
They very quickly doubted God, didn't they? They doubted God was enough. They doubted that God had good intentions. That he, that he brought, when God brought them into places where they needed Him, where there was no water and no food, instead of crying out in prayer and dependence upon Him, they became what? Discontent. And they started to grumble and to complain. God was not their primary delight. And because of this, their contentment was dependent on their circumstances. So think about Israel. We're in the Lord because we're in the house covered with blood. We're in the Lord because we're relationally connected to Him, going through our pilgrimage. But we very quickly look around at our circumstances. We grow discontent and we grumble and we complain. Does that sound a little bit familiar? They had the Lord, but they wanted the keg. <laughs> Even after God gave them manna in the wilderness, they cried out this, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt and cost nothing. Of course it cost nothing because you were slaves. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna. Ever find yourself anxious to change your circumstances so that you can finally be happy? What if there was a way to be content regardless of your circumstances? I think that's precisely what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4. He's taking this opportunity of thanking the Philippian Christians for their financial support of his ministry, and he's using that like a canvas to paint this truth. True contentment comes as you find ultimate delight in God. True contentment comes as you find your ultimate happiness in the Lord. And he describes three things they have to do. Number one, properly define the need. This is Philippians 4.10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul is, he's just being so careful here. It's very interesting how he writes this. He wants to thank them and, and truly thank them for their generosity toward him. They've supported him in the past, and they're supporting him now, and that's great. But the very next thing he says, look at verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. I'm super thankful for your generosity, but I just want you to know that I was fine. Fine, Paul? You were in prison. Prisons aren't like what they're like now. Like, Somebody's got to bring you food. Somebody's got to bring you water. People will let you rot there and die. They don't care. You are not cared for. And, and see, this is crazy because Paul is writing to them. They've just given him this generous gift, and he just, I, I want you to know that I was not in need. Not that kind of need. Not that level of need. The man is in prison, and he is saying to them, I was not in need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. So Paul is talking about need here in a very fundamental way. At the very core of his being, Paul lacks nothing. At one level, he could say, I need a bed. <laughs> I need some food. I need to get out of prison. 
But at the very core of his person, Paul says, I don't need anything at all. I'm fine right here in this prison with no bed and with no food. So he's defining need here as something fundamental to his human existence, something akin to the source of life. And that leads us to the next thing, number two, clearly define contentment. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am. You could just read those words on your mind. Just let, let, your, let your eye go across that verse and read that phrase for yourself. Whatever situation I am. In whatever situation I am, I have learned to be what? Content. Why don't you just take a moment and think about some of your worst situations right now. Got it? Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is telling us that he lives in a state of contentment. The actual word he uses here would have been familiar to everybody, but not the way he's using it. The ancient Stoics invented the word. And uh, it's something, it's sometimes translated something like self-sufficient. Because for the Stoics, that's what, that's, that's what the goal was, to not need anybody. <laughs> so they're not nice people to be around. They're hermits. They, they just want to be recluse. I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. I don't need you. Totally self-reliant. Untouched by whatever is happening around me. Whatever happens may happen. I am untouched by it. That kind of fatalism is actually very close to Islam. Uh, whatever Allah does, Allah does. Of course, there's an echo of truth in that, that God is sovereign and God is going to do what God is going to do. But the big, huge difference between Allah and God, between Islam and Christianity, between the Stoics and Christianity, is that we are in Christ and that we have relationship with God. We're not pawns on the chessboard of some distant deity who may have ill intent or not, we don't know. If we're Christians, we're brothers of Christ and we are sons and daughters of the Father. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We have a real and a dynamic existing relationship with God through Christ. And so the contentment that Paul describes here is not just dull resignation to predetermined outcomes. That's called fatalism. There's something far deeper going on with the apostle here. He's telling us that the circumstances of life have zero impact on his contentment. He's not a fatalist. He's not some unfeeling self-absorbed stoic hermit, he's content, he's satisfied, happy, if you will, happy in the Lord. He's not the self-sufficient stoic. Paul's telling us something about himself that's far deeper, more joyful than that. In fact, some people have said this whole letter is about joy. It's in every chapter. But Paul had to get there. That takes us to number three, work to discover the secret. That's what you got to do. Work to discover the secret. Paul tells us he's content, but he also tells us he wasn't always content. It wasn't like 
God saved me and I'm content for the rest of my life. You had to change. You had to learn something as a Christian. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We had a loose kitchen faucet recently. I installed it about nine years ago, which probably is why it was loose. Anyway, like the whole thing was moving. It wasn't just like a dripping thing. Like the whole thing was like moving around. And finally I said to Susan, all right, I'm going to fix that. And, but it had been a while. So I got my head under the sink, me and Will, you know, and we're looking. And I'm like, how does that, how? it was nine years ago. And I'm, I'm, so eventually I'm just lying there with my head under the sink. And I'm kind of taking the whole thing apart in my mind's eye. And I'm like, oh yeah, you got to take off the thing and then get that other thing I saved for just a day such as this and put it on that thing and twist the thing and it'll be a thing, it'll be fine. And I did, and I was right. I learned the secret and I was content. (laughs) Paul says, I'm content. I have learned the secret. It's one word in the original. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It's translated for us, I have learned the secret. It's just one word. It it means I have inside knowledge. Something's been revealed to me. I understand something other people do not. And Paul is not bragging here. He's discipling here. He's bringing you into his life to show you you can be this way too. This is something he wants all of us to understand. By saying that he learned the secret, he's indicating that being content in every circumstance is not automatic. It doesn't just come because you say, I'm a Christian. It is a spiritual discipline to be learned, which means you could go through your entire Christian life as a grumbler and a complainer. How's the, la- how've the last two years been on the grumbling and complaining scale? It's just interesting to me that God brings about in his own providence these different circumstances. And I watched a lot of Christians despair. I watched, watched other Christians rage. I saw some Christians grumbling complaining, like a certain group of people wandering in the wilderness. Is that you? I wonder, I'm not God, so I don't know, but I just wondered. I wonder if the Lord, one of the reasons in his providence he allowed for COVID was to help expose something in his people that maybe we thought we were satisfied in God, but what we were really satisfied in were the pleasant circumstances he had put us in. So by the removal of some of those circumstances, he begins to test and to see, is your delight in me? In other words, we didn't know the secret. Don't you want to know the secret? He tells you the secret right there in verse 13. He does all things in Christ. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. What does that mean? 
speaking about our position and speaking about our relationship with God through the resurrected Christ. Once that position is secure through repentance and faith in Jesus, we increasingly submit our entire life to Jesus, depending on him in everything for everything. Those who are positionally in Christ now live out their lives in dependent relationship upon Christ. They're in Christ. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples, say in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That is a positional and a relational reality. When you're born again, you are positionally put in Christ, so identified with Christ that all of his life is credited to your account. That's you hiding in the house with the blood-covered doorposts. But you're also brought into this real and vibrant relationship with Christ, and since he's your superior in every way, it's not a relationship of equals, but one of dependence. You are to depend for everything on Jesus, just like Israel should have depended on God for everything like water and food in the wilderness. Are you married? Have you ever experienced some dry seasons in the relationship? When you feel distant from your spouse, you are no less positionally connected to them. You remain married even though you might be relationally distant. Paul says, here's the secret, remain relationally connected to Christ. There it is. Find your soul's happiness in God through Christ moment by moment. Would you be happy in a marriage if your spouse lived on another continent and you never spoke to one another, no FaceTime, nothing. And this went on for years and years and years. Would that make your heart just soar with joy? Of course it wouldn't. I mean, positionally, you are still married, but relationally, there is nothing. And so Paul is teaching that the secret is to keep investing in the relational aspect of your position. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul said, in him, I can do everything. Those are the same statements, friends. And because of that, Paul is able to stay content, spiritually happy, if you will, whether it's hunger, need, humiliation, or overflowing abundance, a full belly, having more than he needs. He takes the two ends of the physical spectrum and thus includes everything in between. And he says, as far as my contentment goes, it is unaffected by these external things. I don't get happier when there's steak in the freezer, and I don't get sad if I have to skip a meal. I am content. I've learned the secret. I find my life in God through Christ. Why, Paul? Because 
Everything I do in life, I am doing in Christ. I do all things in Christ. Poverty, riches, hunger, feasting, I do them in Christ. I do welfare in Christ. I do a big inheritance in Christ. I do childbirth in Christ. I do the loss of a child in Christ. I do get a raise in Christ. I do get fired in Christ. I do health in Christ. I do cancer in Christ. I do all things in Christ who empowers me. And since I am doing all of life in Christ, I am am totally content. And you can be too. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I will never be content, my circumstances are too hard, I rebuke you with Philippians 4.19, which says, it's there, friend. It's there. Will you lean in? You've heard the secret. Kids, have you ever gone fishing with a fishing pole? There's a fisherman who works at this church, and he tells me that Uh, live bait is the best bait. So I would like to know if you've ever stuck a worm on a hook. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you put that thing. Why do you put a worm on the hook? That's called bait. Because you want the little fishy to swim by, and you want him to see a worm and go, oh, dude, free worm. And But, of course, behind the worm is a hook, and he catches you, or you catch him. And then you eat him. Or you throw them back, because that's more humane. Uh, I'm trying to bait you right now. I'm trying to bait you to actively seek delighting in God by dangling the promise of contentment in front of you. But here's a bait that has no hook. Because even the act to get there, which is delighting in God, brings joy with it. (laughs) Delighting in God is wonderful. It's soul satisfying in and of itself. But it's this delight in God which will lead to contentment. And so the path you're on to gain contentment is in and of itself a glorious thing. Don't you want to live in this world content in any circumstance. Susan and I were out last night, we're driving along Lakeshore down south of Tobago, and I said, honey, imagine, imagine we're in Ukraine and this is just all rubble. Would we be content? I'm trying to show you the counterintuitive way to discover the secret. The way you grow in contentment is you die to self. You live in dependence. You live in unity with the resurrected Christ. Instead of seeking your life in stuff or houses or people or political outcomes or money or physical pleasure, seek life in God. You are in Christ positionally. Now you do all that you can do to live in Christ relationally. And as you do, you'll discover that deep soul contentment that doesn't require liquor or pot or sex or Bitcoin or people to change the way they are. Real contentment, soul contentment is before you. So so how do you do this? Well, you do it the way the Apostle Paul said. 
You ever watch Dragon's Den? That show where people come and pitch their business idea, and they want, they want some outside money to come in. I probably watched all of them. It's ridiculous. Anyway, it, the recurring problem on Dragon's Den is the way people make bad valuations of their business. They say, I've got this great idea. It's worth $50 million. Give me 10, and I'll make the idea happen. They're like, You're, it's worth nothing because not, you haven't done anything. Bad valuation. They come in thinking it's worth something. It's worth nothing. Why? Because they have no proof of concept, no evidence it's going to work. They haven't made any money yet. The resurrection is proof of concept. So the path to contentment begins with a proper valuation. In comparison to everything else, what's Christ worth? Paul tells you in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's a relational term. Paul's whole existence is tied up in knowing and loving God through the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul turns to the Philippians then. He tells them, you need to pursue the same thing. Chapter 4, verse, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. But what, Paul? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That sounds a whole lot like contentment to me, does it to you? The peace of God that passes human understanding? The peace of God that comes as a result of communion with God in prayer? And so Paul's telling them to strive after this, run after this, diligently pursue this ongoing relationship, this ongoing delight in the Lord. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling or disputing. We've come full circle, haven't we? Discontent people complain. Discontent people grumble. Discontent people whine. Discontent people get angry. But those who delight in the Lord are content. They are unaffected by circumstance because they are happy in Almighty God. Poverty or prosperity doesn't touch their happiness, their delight in the Lord. And none of that would be in our reach if Christ had not been raised from the dead, which is why Paul's personal mission, Philippians 3.10, is this, to know him and the power of his what? The power of his resurrection. Christ's resurrection. He's not out to know about a dead man. He's out to know and be in unending relationship with a resurrected man, a living man, his God, his reigning Savior. Christ's resurrection from the dead opens the door for us to live our life in the power of that resurrection, dead to sin, alive to God. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Are you content? Are you content in every single circumstance? That is not a sign that you're politically naive. It is not a sign that you are out of touch with reality. 
If you are content, you have discovered the secret. You are delighting in God through the resurrected Lord Jesus, who himself is never bored, never frustrated, and never unfulfilled. Therefore, the closer we are to him, the less we will be bored, frustrated, and unfulfilled. The more you live your life in Christ, the more you become like Christ. Content, happy in God, regardless of circumstance. May the resurrected Jesus make it so for Grace Fellowship Church. Let's pray. Father, we're about to sing a song written by a man who lost his wife and most of his children in a horrible tragedy and could say, it's well with my soul. That's a kind of contentment that we desperately need. And when he said, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on my soul. There was the heart of his positional reality. Because of that, because his greatest need was met, he could delight in you in his deepest sorrows. Oh God, make us more and more like this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.